Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Paul DeBoli with us. Paul, a former Secret Service agent, was 28 years old at the time of John F. Kennedy's assassination, was assigned to his wife, Jackie, has written a book called The Final Witness about things that he witnessed and saw. He's not negating the Warren Commission's report, even though a lot of us don't think uh, it was accurate. But uh, what are your thoughts on Paul Landis? Well, first of all, I love the book. And I do talk to Mr. Landis on occasion, um, uh, you know, via email, et cetera. And, you know, I, I knew the book was coming out, and I, and I had pre-ordered it and, and, was, and was waiting to get it uh, via Kindle the day that it came out. And I wasn't disappointed. Um, you know, he, he, he talks about, you know, being on the first lady, details some of the trips they were taking, and, and it's kind of a way to set the stage for the trip to Dallas in, uh, on November 22nd. Um, and, you know, he describes, you know, he was looking over his shoulder, uh, back and to the right, but then talks about when they got to Parkland Hospital. And one of the things that always bothered me at Parkland Hospital is that a lot of the news photographs you saw of President Kennedy's limousine out, you know, outside? There were people cleaning up the blood, the the, the blood stains and, um, and 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 mess inside the car. Yeah, and it was evidence. It's a crime scene. It's a crime scene. You know, and again, these were trained officers. They had been through, um, you know, something very similar to the FBI Academy. Uh, but I think it was such an unexpected event that a lot of people just kind of weren't firing on all on all eight cylinders at the time. Um, Excuse me, but he talked. But, but there, there's one quote in the book that was just amazing. When Mrs. Kennedy finally stood up, I looked again at the seat and saw a bullet on top of the tufted black leather cushioning behind where she had been sitting. In pristine condition, too. In pristine condition, and and he then describes how he picked up the bullet, put it in his pocket, and then said, "Oh darn, what should I do now?" And then talks about placing it on Kennedy's uh, gurney right by his foot. Now, this 
and, and you know, and then again, you know, transferring the president's body, et cetera, it, it ended up rolling onto another gurney and eventually onto the floor. And we all know the story of the, the story about how the magic bullet was 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 discovered in in in, in a hallway at Franklin Hospital. But it, it immediately throws all of the conclusions in the Warren Commission report into the sky because if that's the magic bullet, then there's no way that the magic bullet could have made you know the wounds in, in President Kennedy, the wounds in Governor Connolly, and then turned around, made a U-turn to to deposit itself on the back seat and be in a pristine shape. In a, in a, it, it would have been all mangled up. So then the question is, who shot Governor Conley? And in the book, Agent Landis talks about uh, noticing the, 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 the crack and the hole in the front windshield just to the left of the, of the rearview mirror. And he always says he was amazed that, 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 you know, that bullet particles could have, have flown towards the front of the car without hitting anybody else, because there were six occupants of that vehicle. There was President Mrs. Kennedy, there was um, Governor and Mrs. Connolly, um, there was Roy Kellerman, uh, and the driver, Bill Greer. So, you know, it, it was a very target-rich environment. So, you know, the question then becomes, who shot Governor Connolly? And, if, you know, and, and we do know that Governor Connolly was shot, so that, we, so that means they had to be at least a fourth bullet fired. At least, and they only say three at, at this very, point. At the very least, you know there was there was one bullet that that um, that was obviously fired from from behind the motorcade. And I'm not sure it came from the Texas School Book Depository that impacted the sidewalk and then and then caused the piece of the concrete on the sidewalk to 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 come loose and and strike a man named James Teague in the face. So we know that that's that's one bullet. Now we know there's a, sec- there's a second bullet that, has, that, that, that hits Kennedy and could have hit Governor Conley, okay? But then where did this bullet come from? And then the fatal bullet. And then where did this bullet that lodged in the back of the seat uh, behind Mrs. Kennedy come from? And now, it had to be a shot from the front. With Paul Landis, am I correct that he still agrees with the Warren Commission's findings, or has he changed that? Um, when he, well, he, he never even read the Warren Commission report until fairly recently. And basically he said, they, you know, they, they've got it all wrong. And, you know, and, and, and I think that's what prompted him to write the book, to set the record straight. But I also get the, get, get the feeling from, from reading the book that he was, a, he was a very, very decent man. And he had this, this, this secret about where that bullet on the gurney came from. And he had to let the world know how it got there. Why didn't he just turn it into the Secret Service? You know, we all react strangely under under pressure. Uh, the training regimen back then wasn't anywhere near what the training regimen is right now. Um, I think that the Kennedys were had very close personal relationships with a lot of people in the protective detail, and I think I think he was in shock. He's in his late eighties, I think. He is. Um, um, if he was 28 in 1963, that that that, that you know that puts him uh, um, 80, 88 yeah. years old. Like 87, 88 years old. And, and and you know, as he started reading about, he talks about someone giving him a copy of seven of seven seconds in Dallas, and he read it. And 
then started to recall certain things, and, and but I think he was sitting on this for a number of years. And, and quite frankly, I tried to get him to speak in my conspiracy class. And I've had Clint Hill several times. And he's, a, he's a wonderful speaker. But, I, but I've literally chased Paul, Paul Landis for almost 10 years now uh, before I finally got a return email. So I think he was a very private man. I think he was sitting on this information. I think he felt guilty. I think he was torn as to whether or not to come forward. And, and, and I'm very glad he did to clarify the historical record. Now there's, a, there's, a, there's another bullet that's unaccounted for that's going to feel speculation, but a good deal of research for, for the next decade to come. And I'm glad he wrote the book. He did a wonderful job. Um, and he talks about, you know, even that day, what should he do with the bullet? Yeah, um, you know, he, he he picked up the bullet. He didn't want it to be to, to disappear by souvenir hunters, and I and I get that. And he tells an interesting story about a Zippo lighter that was found in the backseat of the limo, which an aide to Mrs. Kennedy recently sold on eBay, and it was actually Clint Clint Hill's cigarette lighter. Um, so I think the danger of um, souvenir hunters or or somebody picking something up that they that they shouldn't have you know, in the confusion, was a very real concern for him. And he was seeking to preserve the evidence. Did they have sophisticated uh, fingerprinting at that time? Uh, they, did have, they, did, they did have fingerprinting in the 1960s, but it was a very, it was a very slow, laborious, labor-intensive process um, because computers were still in its infancy. So it, it would require really well-trained trained fingerprint technicians with with excellent eyesight and really high powered magnifying equipment to be able to compare latent prints left on, um, you know, uh, uh, an item versus, like a, like a bullet. Yeah, or prints that were on file. But the interesting thing is, if you look at the FBI report on the um, Manmaker Carcano rifle, they only got a portion of Oswald's palm print on a, on a certain area of that rifle that. He would not hold it in that way. He would be, he would be assembling the rifle was where the palm print came from. And here's the other interesting 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 thing too. You know, while we're on Oswald, um, how did they test for gunfire residue back then? They used to use a paraffin test, right? They would pour warm wax on someone's hand, um, you know, let it harden, peel it off, and then examine it under a microscope, looking for you know these little black specks of nitrate. Powder. Yeah, a little residue. That's right. right. So he just fired a rifle. There was some gunpowder residue, gunpowder residue on his hand. But think about what he had to do. He had to take that rifle. He had to put it up to his face. He had to sight his target. He had to fire it, cycle the bolt, reacquire his target, fire it, recycle the bolt, reacquire his target, and fire it again. There would have had to have been gunpowder residue on his face, and his face tested negative for gunpowder residue. Interesting. And as he said, he was a patsy. He was a patsy, and, and, I, and I think he was a patsy. I think there was at least one shooter. Uh, one of the, um, there's, there's a gentleman, I can't recall his name off the top of my head. He was a, he was a deaf mute who actually saw men with a rifle behind the fence, but couldn't get anyone to listen to him because he was a, he was a deaf mute. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. 
In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And what about that smoke by the grassy knoll? Yeah, well, they tried to put it off that it was steam coming from, you know, you know, from an underground thing. There were no steam pipes there. Um, but I also came across something in, in the research for my book that, um, um, the, the, uh, that sh- very shortly after, I'm talking within seconds after the motorcade passed, um, you know, a cargo train started rolling across that triple overpass bridge. And, and I've yet to find confirmation of it, but what a perfect escape route, my goodness. It is amazing, truly, truly amazing, Paul. Yeah, and, and it's funny because, you know, and one of the things that I, that, I, that, that I argue against is a lot of people are willing to, you know, and yes, they know on some level that there might have been some conspiracy, but a lot of people are willing to put off a lot of the, the, the I don't want to say coincidences because I, I, I despise that word, but a lot of the events at that time, they're putting that off as coincidence. And the question that I ask is, you know, at what point, at what, you know, we're stacking these individual facts on a scale. At what point, to you, the individual, does the scale tip from pure possible coincidence to a grander, well-orchestrated plan? And the answer is different for everyone, but I think at some point in your analysis as as fact A leads you to fact B, leads you to fact C, leads you to fact D, et cetera, on down the road, where do you, where, where are you as, as an individual willing to make that leap from, oh, yeah, this happened, okay, this happened, okay, this happened, to saying, yeah, there's got to be something more to it here. This has to be part of a well-thought-out um, and orchestrated plan. And let me ask you one question. Of all the Secret Service agents, 
that were in Dallas that day, and, and the total I have is, is 29. How many of those Secret Service agents were interviewed by the FBI? I would guess just a few. Zero. Zero. Unbelievable. Zero. Unbelievable. Now, now all of the agents you know, that were present, you know, some were at the trademark, some were back, were back guarding Air Force One, you know, some were accompanying... Uh, but you'd at least interview the ones that were in the motorcade. You would interview the ones that were in the motorcade, exactly. Yet the FBI interviewed zero. What drives you, Paul? What pushes you? Um, you know, I'm not... Well, it's, it's, it's to solve the unsolvable case, I guess, right? I mean, this is an, one of the most important events in United States history. I would argue that, that, that the assassination of Lincoln and the assassination of JFK had changed the trajectory of this country at two certain points. And I just want to know what happened. I remember as a, as, a, as a small boy sitting in my living room watching my parents, tears streaming down their face, watching TV. And I just feel as though I have to get to the bottom of it. I think, I still think that the JFK assassination was a mob hit. Uh, I think they might have been involved. I think they may have been involved in it. But I think in one of our previous discussions, you know, one of, one of the big things is that a number of people thought the gunshot came from the grassy knoll, okay? Mm -hmm. and they started to run towards the grassy knoll. And the interesting thing is, we're not talking about, you know, downtown New York or, or, or wherever. Okay, we're talking about Texas. And Texas has a very, very deep gun culture. You know, there's an old joke that, you know, once you're born, when you, on your way out of the hospital, they give you your birth certificate, a 9 millimeter pistol, and some ammo to get you started off right. And you're on your way. Yeah, but, um, you know, so, and then I started looking at people that, that, that claimed that the gunshots came from the grass. You know, and it's a downtown area. There are tall buildings. There's all, there's all kinds of, of, of echo and ricochet effect. But a surprising number of people that said that the gunfire came from the grass, you know, were former military or, or current law enforcement. 1963, we're 18 years after the end of World War II. We're less than 10 years after the end of the Korean War. If, um, these veterans, how many rounds did they send down range, either in training or in combat? I think they can evaluate where gunfire is coming from. Yep, exactly. Second nature. So I divided the witnesses you know, who, 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 who claimed that gunshots came from the grass. You know, and I started looking at their backgrounds, and I started just kind of filling in some blanks. On, um, on their military records, and there were a surprising number that saw combat in World War II or Korea, or both. I'll always always think of the head that came, Kennedy's head, that snapped backwards instead of forwards. You would think if you were shot from the back, the momentum would push your head forward. Yeah, well, some people try to claim it a whip, you know, claim that um, uh, Bill, Bill Greer, the driver, kind of started to accelerate, which caused his head to snap back. But in one of the videos, you can actually see the brake lights on where he actually started to slow down because he was saying, what the heck is going on here? Um, but if you look at, and, and one of the theories about, you know, JFK's brain being missing was to hide the, was to disguise the path of the bullet. But if you look at the Orville Nix film, and you can, and you can look at an undoctored version on YouTube, okay, watch it on a big screen. You know, use the little settings button to, 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 to have it, play at 25% speed, you actually see blood extrude from the front of the head 
and then follow. I mean, it's like it's like it's like watching someone put on a shower cap and just watch that 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 faint pink cloud and what appears to be a piece of President Kennedy's skull just envelop his head from front to back and then just rip off the back of his head. And if you do an analysis of where, where the motorcycle outriders were, who had blood spatters, who didn't, etc., you know, you come to the conclusion very, very quickly that that's a fatal shot. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.